Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from the battlefront, discuss the conflict's ongoing cyber war, and ask whether the West has, for years, been overestimating Russian military strength. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 10th of May, day 76. And today I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols and Senior Technology Reporter Gareth Caulfield. I started by asking Dom for the latest developments from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So in the uh, in the south of Ukraine, around Odessa, there's been more missile strikes there. Origin unknown, possibly from the Black Sea fleet uh, or possibly air, air launched, um, but unknown. But it's killed one person, injured five. Um, hasn't, apart from the casualties, it's not it's not done anything of, of great military value. So it's just repeating the pattern we've seen of, of late that Russia, as it stalled, uh, in the Donbass, just as it was stalled in the north of the country in the early weeks of the war, it's just relying on 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 Route One, basically, just just firing um, indirect fire, uh, artillery, missiles, uh, almost almost just punitively, really, just just um, no no massive uh, strategic thought behind it. And those strikes in Odessa, they came as there was a, a Pentagon brief last night, and a Pentagon uh, spokesman said that Russia has, quote, this, no ability to move on Odessa, unquote. And, and he said there was no maritime threat to Odessa. So, you know, it, this was just just punishment, as, as, we, um, as we've seen recently. But the strikes came as the European Council President Charles Michel was visiting. Uh, there are uh, echoes here, if you remember, when um, UN Secretary General 
uh, Antonio Guterres visited uh, Bucha a couple of weeks ago. There was there were airstrikes in in the area. So uh, again, I, I mean, it's just it just speaks of Russia's completely cavalier approach to any form of diplomacy that they should they should um, even risk uh, killing such a very high profile um, member of, of the EU. Elsewhere, and again from this uh, from this Pentagon brief, uh, they were saying that there's been no meaningful progress in the south from Russia. Um, they said there was a number of targets, three targets hit on Snake Island. So interestingly, in the last few days, we've seen a number of attacks on uh, Ukrainian attacks on Snake Island. Uh, Snake Island been very Snake Island is would be very helpful for Russia if they wanted to launch into the south around Odessa. Um, so they they do need it from that regard, but they need to put an air defence umbrella over it, and that plan was massively dented when Ukraine sank the Moskva frigate. So Snake Island is now largely um, defenseless from the air, and uh, and it would obviously be be of huge strategic value and cultural value for Ukraine to, to take it back. So in the last few days, we've seen a number of attacks on Snake Island, and this might just be a, a continuation of that. Uh, and just finally. Uh, Ukraine has continued to push Russia to the east of Kharkiv and um, significantly the estimates are that Russian forces now 50 kilometers so 30 miles east of uh, of Kharkiv and um, that's that's out of most out of range of most artillery uh, fire and it also starts to threaten Russian supply lines coming down from Belgorod into the Donbass so what what started off as looked like a series of of, sort of mini counterattacks there by the Ukrainian forces it's now it, it, it sort of morphed together into a larger operational operational push into the north that could actually threaten Russia's uh, efforts into the Donbass. Uh, I'll just take a pause there. Thanks, Dom. Um, just a f- further question on Mariupol. Um, the battle for the Azovstal steelworks is continuing. What's the latest there? So there, there's reckoned to be anything up to a thousand Ukrainian troops still inside, many, many, many injured, and uh, dozens at least dozens of civilians, and that's not including obviously all the the thousands of civilians in Mariupol city uh, more broadly. Um, yes, more airstrikes, more more indirect fire onto the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol. Um, you may remember about two weeks ago, Russia said Russia declared victory there and, and said that they they had no no further interest in in pursuing military uh, uh, pursuing the the plant as a military objective but that that doesn't seem to be the case um i mean we we were wondering if this was going to be the victory that putin sought for yesterday's victory parade um it it doesn't seem to be so i mean it hadn't fallen by by yesterday clearly so we think maybe this is just uh, it, it's just such a needle in the side, a thorn in the side of, of Russia, that they want to take that plant. Um, U.S. intelligence, sorry, U.S. Pentagon um, assessing that there's around two Russian battalion tactical groups now uh, in Mariupol to, for that operation. N- that's not that's not a huge number. Um, so it, we might just see this this endless grinding war of attrition in that area um, for some time yet. But I mean, it, it, the defenders there will be very low on food, water, medical supplies, ammunition and so on. So um, we've been saying this for weeks now and they've, they've, they've proved to be hardy defenders. But um, I, I mean, that Russia seem intent on taking the entire plant. Thanks, Tom. Are there any other, any other uh, updates, uh, diplomatic or otherwise, that we think we should mention before we bring Gareth into the conversation? Uh, just one of note. So in Finland, um, the Parliament Defence Committee has, uh, has recommended that Finland joins NATO. Uh, we're expecting the, uh, President Sauli Ninisto to uh, offer um, the view f- from the top 
so to speak, on Thursday, which really will which really will set the direction. But it's looking more and more likely that Finland will apply for NATO membership. Um, I was there last week with the Defence Secretary and that was very much the the messaging, uh, well, the, 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 the implied messaging, the body language, if you like, rather than the, the actual words um, that we were hearing from, the, um, from Finland's Defence Minister. Uh, if, if Finland joined, very, very likely that Sweden will also apply to join. Um, and there are there have been more... Uh, suggestions that between applying for membership and and being accepted by the 30 existing members of NATO, that security guarantees would be extended across Finland and Sweden. Thank you very much, uh, Dom, for those updates. Um, thank you very much, Gareth, uh, Gareth Caulfield, Senior Technology Reporter here at The Telegraph, for joining this conversation. Um, Gareth, you're an expert in, uh, in, well, you write a lot about technology and um, the cyberspace. Um on this podcast, we've spoken a lot about the battles on land, at sea, and in the air. Um, cyber warfare is obviously a huge part of modern conflicts. How has it played out so far in the Ukraine-Russia war? Well, cyber has been one of those things that we expected at the outset of the Ukrainian invasion to be a really large part of Russia's efforts militarily. Um, the sort of story leading up to the invasion was very much of Russia using its military intelligence uh, division's cyber capabilities to attack uh, targets of Western interest. But apart from one large high-profile hack at the start of the war, which was against a company called Viasat, which provides satellite communication, satellite-based internet uh, for, amongst other things, large parts of Eastern Europe and Ukraine, we've not really seen much in the way of Russian cyber capabilities. Now, the Viasat hack um, was one of the most high-profile things that happened to date, and that comes back in February. What we've seen since then has, from Russia has largely been... You might always call it routine jogging, really. R- routine sort of low-level cyber operations, attempts to you know, send phishing emails to Ukrainian military and civilian officials, attempts to get hold of, uh, get control of social media and email accounts and use those to spread false and demoralizing messages. But what a lot of experts had expected to see at the outset of the Ukrainian war was Russia using its cyber capabilities to paralyze chunks of Ukraine. I mean, we've, we've seen them in the past, certainly in 2014, carrying out cyber attacks against the Ukrainian electricity grid. And you know, the upshot of that was that they blacked out part of Kiev for, I think it was two hours, uh, and then the Ukrainians got the lights back on. So what we what we were seeing previously was a lot of people saying that this is going to be a terrifying, you know, new dimension of warfare that's going to absolutely vanquish anything we've ever seen before. And the reality has been actually quite disappointing, very much in line with Russia's military performance, I would say, in that everyone said it's, it was going to be, you know, sort of a demonstration rehearsal of World War Three. And what we've actually ended up with is a grinding stalemate, not similar to Afghanistan. So before we go into... The detail, they're really the sort of nuts and bolts of what, what does a cyber, cyber attack involve? How does it work? What, what, is, the, what is the gain from it? Um, can, uh, can, can we talk a bit about this, this, Viasat, this Viasat claim? So that came out today that the, the EU have said that Russia hacked them. Can you talk a bit, bit more about that? What, what, what is back in February? What happened? Yes. So what happened in February was uh, Viasat's uh, KASAT uh, service, which covers a large part of Eastern Europe, and also um, Ukraine as well, uh, suddenly went offline. Now, the first visible sign of that was when a cybersecurity company called Sentinel-1 
Um, one of their customers runs wind turbines in Germany. And the customer said, well, we've just noticed that 5,800 of our turbines have vanished from our systems. You know, we, they were using the satellite service to, to monitor them just as basic internet connectivity. And they said, these things have, have completely vanished. We don't know what's happened, what's going on. And Sentinel-1 was, was alerted to that. And at the, at the outset, they knew no more than anybody else. But they quickly noticed that large parts of connectivity around Eastern Europe, which are all dependent on that KASAT satellite, uh, were going down, were disappearing from public parts of the internet. Uh, and I think the, you know, the subsequent investigation revealed that what the Russians had done was use their hackers from what we call the GRU, which is one of their intelligence agencies. Uh, the GRU's hackers had uh, targeted uh, the satellite's communication and control systems. So they actually found a way of hacking into those and pushing a malicious software update now, that software update was then broadcast from the satellite to all of the thousands upon thousands of users of the KASAT service. And what it did was overwrite critical parts of their routers, you know, the routers that they use to communicate with the satellite, in the same way as your home router talks to your home internet connection. Uh, and the, the effect of that was that it overwrote the vital parts of the router's software, which allowed it to communicate with the network. And once that had gone, uh, you know, everything just disappeared offline completely. And the intention of that was to target the Ukrainians. So the Ukrainians, a lot of um, civil, pardon me, civil society, as well as the more military parts of the Ukrainian state, uh, were customers of Viasats and were using the KASAT service. But because the satellite covers such a large physical area of ground, it actually took out an awful lot of Eastern Europe's satellite connectivity in the process. So there we were seeing sort of the, the, the sort of panic elements, you know, the, the widespread destruction caused by a Russian cyber attack spilling over from its intended targets to affect a whole lot of other people who, at the time, had no reason to believe that anything Russia would do would affect them. Thank you very much, Gareth. That's, that's hugely in-depth. Can we talk a little bit about this um, attack in early April? Ukraine accused the Russians of attempting to shut down part of their electricity grid. So you've, you've talked about satellites. Um, can we go into detail here? So they're, they're trying to shut down the electricity grid. What happened? How do they try and do that? Uh, and and how, how did the situation resolve? So the electricity grid hack in April was a stifled attempt. Now, I think um, Western intelligence, particularly the US, were actually quite critical. Um, and not just the, the US intelligence, but also US-based tech companies were very big in helping the Ukrainians with this. But what happened was the Ukrainians, a um, Ukrainian electricity firm uh, in the east of the country, had noticed that something wasn't quite right with their IT systems. You know, certain sensors weren't reading correctly, that there were sort of signs of things going on with their networks. And as we were told, uh, Microsoft, uh, amongst other companies, which has a, a very large cybersecurity division, uh, had been assisting the Ukrainians up to this point. And they, they stepped in and they said, hey, this is, this is serious. This looks like an attempt by the Russians to get in here. Uh, and the Ukrainians have a very well-developed cybersecurity function, as you might imagine, at this stage of the war, uh, and started looking into that. And they realized very quickly that they had actually caught a live in-progress attempt by Russia to get into this power company and shut down its operations, shut down the ability to generate and distribute electricity. And the Ukrainians, I think, named half a dozen Western, primarily US-based tech companies there. Uh, Microsoft was was one of the main um, names they mentioned. But what they did was they caught the Russians in the act and are able to sort of what we call isolate and segment parts of the network off from each other. So halting the Russians in their tracks by not quite physically, but sort of, you know, in a software sense, pulling the plug and saying, right, you will 
not to be able to connect to any further computers in this network. We've halted you in your tracks. You're stopping right here. Uh, and then it's a case of shutting the Russians out, changing passwords, um, rotating all of the um, what we call rotating credentials, which is a cybersecurity term for changing passwords, changing the two-factor authentication codes. You know, and you get your text message from your phone from your, when you log into your bank. It's a very similar thing uh, that happens in industrial control systems. So all of those systems needed to be reset and recalibrated uh, once the Russians have been detected, caught, and ultimately thrown out of that network. But it was a very, very close-run thing. The Ukrainians did say that they caught it in progress, and I think the suggestion was that had they not acted in concert with their Western partners as quickly as they did, we could have seen another power blackout, um, a bit like 2014's um, hack in Kiev, and only on a much, potentially, a much bigger, more widespread scale. Thanks, Gareth. I mean, this is this is astonishing to hear, really. This is, you're, you're describing... A, a battle just in in the in this in the cyber uh, arena rather than on land or at sea. Um, can, Tom, can I bring you in here? If so much of the uh, if a lot of the military kit relies on internet connectivity and um, and everything that Gareth's been talking about, what actually happens to a soldier for, for soldiers when your internet falls over because the enemy has, has hacked a satellite? Well, I, I mean, we, the short answer is we, we don't know because it's, it's not it's not yet happened. Although militaries are increasingly training for that eventuality and largely it's down to back to sort of map, map and compass try and work out where you are um so much of the so much of military systems and, and capability these days is derived from um timing if not if nothing else from from satellites so to lose that and there are there have been a number of tests we think in space um for anti-satellite weapons uh, various ways of, of knocking out satellites uh, the effect that that would have on the on the modern battlefield would be well as i said but we we don't actually know because it's it's never happened but militaries would be very quick to point out well we got we got you know, great resilience we can just fall back on uh, on our good old fashioned map reading and, and what have you but i mean really when was the last time we actually practiced that when was the last time every individual soldier practiced that let alone up to formation level for example i mean it would be it would be um very interesting to see of course because it's because it's not happened before, any adversary or any 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 actor that tries to do it has no idea what effect it would have on their own systems. And if if they're uh, if you're in the close contact battle, then it's very difficult to say right. I'm only going to allow the, uh, the the electromagnetic energy to be affected in these particular areas over here. Of course, it's going to swamp the entire entire area. So it it it's an a very, an unknown quantity. Um, not saying it would it will never happen, but I think it would be it, it would be quite. Uh, quite telling how quickly uh, militaries would be able to you, go back to other other means or just 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 not sort of normal rf normal radio to to communicate and to uh, and to navigate and and the loss of secure comms in particular would be uh, w- would be very interesting to see i mean we used to say when we were sort of bouncing around in and tanks and what have you that anything in the next 10 minutes i mean it was it's, this was never policy but it was it was sort of taken a bit um a bit glibly, if you like, by by soldiers. When we had to, had to actually sort of encrypt messages by hand and use bat code, bat, battlefield codes, um, anything that's going to happen in the next ten minutes, you you did not encrypt because it took too long to to do it, and the and the event that you're trying to influence has had, had gone, you know, overtaken by events. So it might it might go back to that 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 people just took took risk, quite frankly, and and talked freely on on radio, but that can be uh, that can be intercepted. Of course, you then need translations and uh, translators. And, and all the rest of it. So, so it's not as if you're just hearing the other side immediately turns into tactical advantage. But um, it would have it would have a sizable um, a sizable impact. I've got a question for Gareth, if, if you don't mind me jumping in here. 
so this morning is a, a start of a two-day, uh, as you know, Cyber UK conference in Wales. Uh, the head of GCHU, Britain's Britain's um, cyber spy agency, uh, Sir Jeremy Fleming, gave his speech this morning, and he said that whilst there's not actually been a, a sort of cyber war, there's been a lot of a lot of cyber activity. Um, we're reporting that speech and other uh, associated bits and pieces around it uh, be online later in tomorrow's paper but I just just wonder what capability do you think um, state actors do have so so the NSA in the states GCHQ over here what could they actually do do you think to to influence a a tactical um, land battle that's a very good question Dom a lot of the cyber capabilities that the West has been uh, in the Argo avowing, that's the sort of uh, policy term for saying, we say that we have got this, we're putting it on the record. A lot of the capability the West has been avowing in terms of, sort of cyber war has been deliberately low-key, I think. There's, it's a lot of sort of, yes, we can do things like tackle online disinformation and we can spread our own. I mean, the classic example there was when the UK um, sort of was having a go at ISIS a few years ago, Islamic State in the Middle East. And in terms of tactical influence, I don't think there was a great deal that we did. I mean, there was some sort of limited successes on the record about, um, you know, taking down communication nodes, you know, hacking at ISIS's infrastructure, disabling it and taking it offline. So there's certainly large elements of that available. But, you know, in terms of what the military commands are talking about, the sort of the tactical battlefield sphere of that... You can always, you know, detect an electromagnetic signature, you can classify that, and you can say, right, okay, that's an encrypted electronic link between, I don't know, two computers, let's say. And you can always look for ways to degrade that signal. Uh, You can look for ways to sort of find out what it's saying, tamper with it, rebroadcast it. But the cyber capability to influence the battlefield at a tactical level, I think, is still very much uh, an up-and-coming thing. We haven't seen much in the way of that being at least publicly acknowledged in the Ukrainian conflict so far. But with that said, the US, of course, is one of the preeminent uh, cyber nations up there with uh, countries such as uh, Israel, and I think to an extent probably North Korea as well, though as we are to generally admit that in the West. So the abilities that are at these countries' fingertips in terms of the ability you know, to, to go out and say, right, we're going to use our hackers to take out that HQ's ability to communicate with its subordinate formations. We're going to uh, you know, disrupt the ability of frontline commanders to send clear messages that are not you know, being uh, confused with some, something else. Or, you know, we're not going to sort of start broadcasting order, counter-order and disorder. Um, that, I think, is very much up there. And it's a case of we haven't yet seen it come out of the woodwork. We haven't seen that sort of capability deployed and put into action. So the ability to influence the battlefield at a tactical level, I think it exists, but at a much lower ability to achieve operational effect than some might uh, might want to, want to think or believe. And if I may, now, now I've got you, if I may ask, uh, ask another one, could I parachute you into St. Petersburg briefly um, to the Internet Research Agency, the, the Troll Farm. Uh, oh, yes. Could you just talk us through what this ecosystem is of, well, how we go out from, let's say, from from Russia's state state cyber uh, departments, as in hacking departments, offensive cyber departments, out to the the clients in the troll farms and the, and the relationship there and what you think might be going on now in one of these these uh, these troll farms when they're if they're not if they're not achieving what President Putin might have expected them to have done. 
So with the uh, Kremlin disinformation efforts, the troll farms of uh, St. Petersburg, the Internet Research Agency and all those lovely, lovely people, what we've seen from them is actually a shifting of focus in the last um, couple of months, I think. So since the invasion began, we were seeing sort of propaganda being directed at the West, aimed at capturing Western audiences on the social media platforms that we all use today, you know, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the TikToks of the world. But in recent weeks and months, what some researchers have started to point out is that these troll farms have begun to swing their efforts towards non-aligned countries. We're looking at the sort of Pacific Rim area, maybe countries such as India, to an extent also Israel. And we're seeing Russian propaganda being spread on social media that is intended to push the Russian you know, falsehoods that this is a, a defensive war by by. By Russia, it was a, a war to, to wipe out Nazis from Ukrainian government to you know to fight the the the, uh, the grand conflict against fascism. All of this, of course, is completely false. But uh, that is what the troll farms have switched to doing. They started pumping out that propaganda away from Western audiences, and I think there is um, an element in there of, of the Russians recognizing that they've made as much progress as they can do. And with the West now pushing back, we're seeing things like um, you know, the Russia Today propaganda channel having its Twitter account restricted from viewing in a large number of Western countries. Uh, I think the Russians are starting to believe that the best focus for the disinformation is to influence the rest of the world, non-aligned countries, and to bring them back uh, into line with, with what Russia wants them to see as the truth of the matter, you know, the, what's really going on. And if you look at if you look at consume any kind of Russian media at all, you will see that there is what we in the West regard as a fantastic level of delusion going on. They they truly do believe that they are the saviors of the civilized world as they know it, and that you know the NATO is encircling them and has been encroaching on Rush, rightful Russian territory for years on end. And this is the kind of nonsense that these troll farms and different disinformation factories are spewing out. And I think a point of concern for the West is going to be looking at that kind of disinformation and saying, well, how do we get back on the front foot with this? We've we've successfully done the defensive efforts for our own audiences, but now we're looking at non-aligned countries who may be sort of looking at this and saying, oh, well, this is the the first we've heard about this situation. Maybe there's some truth in this. We should look into it more. So that's the point of concern there, I think. Thanks, Gareth. Thanks, Tom, for those questions. One one question from me, Gareth, we've talked a lot about the Russian um, capacity for cyber warfare and some of their attacks so far. Um, what about the Ukrainian side? I mean, I, I know I've seen quite a few stories about talk of hackers and uh, sort of cyber warriors from around the world uh, coming to the aid of, of Ukraine and using their skill to, to, to help the Ukrainian military. Um, has that happened? Were they effective? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, that's, now that's been a really interesting one. Fairly early after the invasion, the Ukrainians put out a, a sort of dad's army of cyber call um, saying to the world's hackers, you know, we need your help to fend off Russia. And certainly in the early stages, they did. I mean, although the Ukrainians have years and years of experience of Russian aggression online and offline, uh, it's one thing to do that in a sort of grey zone conflict environment and quite another to say, OK, we're in full blown war fighting mode here. So we saw a lot of people in the West, a lot of cybersecurity-minded folks saying, hey, I can, I can actually help here. I can help fight the war from the comfort of my own desk or my own sofa while on my laptop. But in terms of effect, we've not seen that much coming out of that. Now, there's a number of reasons, I think, for that. I think the first one is, is that if you are a volunteer hacker in a foreign country assisting a you know, belligerent combatant state, you put yourself in a legally very grey area. It's not quite the same thing as travelling to Lviv, signing on the dotted line to join the Ukrainian army, being issued a uniform and a rifle and told, right, here's a unit, off you go to the front line. 
you are literally sat on your sofa with your laptop in the comfort of your own home doing things which may or may not be illegal in your country. Now, I think that the Ukrainians may have realised this quite early on, whether or not warned by their Western counterparts, that this could be embarrassing for the West uh, if Western hackers were implicated in anything that was directly targeting Russia. So I think there's been a, a conscious effort by the Ukrainians to play down that sort of dad's army of hackers there, which is... A little bit disappointing because obviously, you know, what we want to be able to do, all of us on an individual level, is say, "Yes, I've done my bit. I've helped poke Vladimir Putin in the eye. I've helped you know, tackle whatever it is that, that they're doing there." But there is another dimension to it, which I think is probably linked, and that is that there is a number of hacker groups operating now who are targeting the Russian state, the Russian public sector, and stealing hundreds upon hundreds of gigabytes of information from their servers. I mean, there's a site called distributed denial of secrets. It's, it's very similar to Wiki, uh, WikiLeaks, not Wikipedia, WikiLeaks back in its early days. And DDO Secrets has been publishing, uh, I think it's terabytes now, cumulatively terabytes of data stolen by what we can only assume are Western-affiliated hackers or certainly Westerners working on behalf of Ukraine who are bringing technical skills that maybe the Ukrainians don't quite have the sort of full spectrum of. And there's a huge amount of that data being stolen, and I think it is probably a, a fairly good informed guess to say that yes this is what the result of the, the citizen hacking effort is um, but of course one of the key features of, of any kind of cyber war is that it's all very shadowy and it's always very difficult to state with absolute confidence yep that's who it is that's who's hacking me those are that's the country where the hackers are coming from who have stolen my data it's not like a traditional battlefield where you've got soldiers in uniforms you've got identifiable markings on vehicles you've got you know particular equipment that says ah oh, yes it's from that country it's very much a case of oh well the network logs suddenly looking a bit funny and oh dear my systems have gone down i'm not quite sure why that is so there's always a sort of post-mortem effort to confidently attribute that kind of activity but in terms of the sort of volunteer western hacking efforts i think that's probably where we're seeing it go and i think the ukrainians are keeping a discreet silence because you know, it is actually a criminal offence in a lot of, in I think most if not all Western countries, to deliberately set out to hack and steal data from somebody else's computer. Certainly, it is in the UK. Just one more question from me. Then, do we have much of a sense of the links between the Ukrainian um, sort of counter-defensive cyber efforts and other Western intelligence uh, services? Well, I think we're seeing a lot of that in the background. I mean, keen students of news will have seen a lot of stories coming up uh, that mention Western officials or NATO officials. And there is an awful lot of cooperation behind the scenes on the cyber war side from Western intelligence agencies, particularly the US, but also the UK as well, uh, getting in there and tipping off the Ukrainians to incoming cyber threats, to potential Russian moves, uh, and to sort of you know, similar things of that nature. So there is a lot of, I would believe, activity going on behind the scenes, which is being kept quiet for probably perfectly good policy reasons, not to, so as not to drag the West even further into a potential confrontation with Russia, or to potentially to provoke the Russian hackers into targeting the West directly in, in a sort of back-off kind of move. Um, in terms of what's on the record, what we know publicly, there is not a great deal, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I'm just sort of racking my brains here and thinking, but no, there's it's sort of little bits here and there a wink and a nod if you know where to look and how to read it but um for now at least i think they're trying to keep it all mostly under wraps gareth at the beginning of this segment you talked a bit about how analysts are surprised that the russian cyber effort has been a, a little i think it's fair to say a little lackluster and that's really chimed i think with 
some of the uh, sort of more hard military assessments of, of Russia's um, of Russia's campaign in Ukraine. Um, so I want to bring in Dom as well to this question. That do you, I mean, do you think that potentially we've overestimated uh, the Russian cyber capacity? And then for Dom, the question is, and I know you want to talk a bit about this, Dom, have, have we for years overestimated uh, Russia's military capability? But Gareth, if, if you'd like to take that question first. Yes. Have we overestimated Russia? I think yes. I think based on the last few years of Russian cyber activity that we've seen directed at the West, I think we, were, we as in you know, Western analysts and observers and all the rest of it, I think we were certainly expecting to see an awful lot more from Russia than what they have demonstrated so far. And I think the conclusion amongst Western analysts and observers at the moment is very much that we, we wanted to see more from Russia, we expected to see more from Russia, we, we certainly had drawn it all out and, and sort of had a fairly good picture of what we thought their capabilities were. But it turns out that when called upon, actually, it's, it's a bit disappointing. I mean, we've we had the Viasat hack, which is bad, don't get me wrong. But other than the Viasat hack, I mean, the most information we've had coming from the Ukrainians themselves has been warnings which would be very familiar to us here in the West today. It's, it's things like don't click on suspicious emails, don't open file attachments from people you don't know. If a, a known trusted contact suddenly starts sending you strange messages, get hold of them through another means and just double check that it is um, re- you, you are truly speaking to that person. And when the warnings have, have sort of declined to that sort of humdrum level almost, and I think it is a safe bet to say that the Russians really were overestimated at the start of the conflict, and what we're seeing now is very much their uh, maximum sustained effort, which is not very good, frankly. Don, would you like to come in on that as well? Yeah, it chimes with something I've been looking at for the last few days. I was reading, there's a really interesting article on the website of the Centre for European Policy Analysis by Jan Kahlberg. He's, he tweets under um, at cyberdefence.com, although he spelt it wrong. He's got defence with an S, when of course we all know it should have a C. But anyway, um, and I've got to hat tip, by the way, uh, Phillips, Phillips P. O'Brien, Professor of Strategic Studies at University of St Andrews for, for um, highlighting this article. But it's basically a bit, a bit as, as, as Gareth was saying there, but across the whole Russian military, have we overestimated them? So yesterday we had the Victory Day parade in Moscow and we saw, well, not, not a huge amount of kit. It was down down on uh, usual years, normal years, and, uh, and there was no air display for weather reasons, apparently. But we were treated to the, to the usual stuff of um, nice shiny equipment, uh, big missiles and all the rest of it, all looking, all looking terrific. And, I, I mean, it, it stands in sharp contrast to what we are seeing with our eyes and the information we're getting from Ukraine, which is that put it all together and the Russian military just has not really performed that well. So it's fine having having nice shiny stuff on parade, but you know, the equipment is only one part of wider military capability. And the article was saying that have we for years overestimated uh, Russia and, and possibly the Soviet Union before that? And we've we've taken too much notice of these these parades and new missiles and new weapons programs and x y and z um uh, and worryingly i mean there's one thing to to okay fine you do that you get it wrong and then we, we see in ukraine that actually it's a it's it's somewhat hollow but the, the article saying that that worryingly if we in the west have built our own policies and our military capabilities and our alliances and our whole resilience running through society and expectations on the back of a, of a flawed model, then is that dangerous? Has it 
has it contributed to a deterioration of international security? Um, and if we got it so wrong about Russia, I, I, I hesitate to say the Warsaw Pact because obviously that's going back quite a way and we, and we, might, we might not have done then. But if the analysis has been wrong about Russian capability, is the, is the analysis about where Putin could possibly draw a line for chemical, biological, nuclear weapons also wrong? So it, it, was, it was just it was an interesting think piece to say how much have we, have we looked for, looked for um, information to fit a, fit a narrative that we, that we want. And then we've built systems and policies accordingly against a flawed model. Um, so has, have, we, have we wasted a lot of money over the last few decades? Question number one. And, and secondly, if we're wrong about that, and I'm, I'm not saying we are, but, but if, if we were wrong about that and if our, if our analysis was, was off or some of the fundamentals upon which that analysis was built were not as strong as we, as we were hoping them to be, um, what does that say now? So I would, uh, yeah, advise, advise you to go and have a, go and have a read if you've got a few minutes. Centre for European Policy Analysis, a good article there by, by Jan Kelbo, but it, it um, yeah, made me think, which is never a good thing, but there we go. Before we move to your final thoughts and just looking at the days ahead and what we should be looking to, what what, what we might expect to see, um, Dom and Gareth, are there any other updates you'd like to to share? Just one for me. Just um, I should have mentioned at the start. Sorry, just just on the numbers. I know every few days it is it is helpful just to to bring us up to speed with where we are. Things are moving so fast that um, that, that I should have should have mentioned this at the start. But uh, Pentagon spokesman last night talking about the the M triple seven howitzers that. That America's uh, gifting to to Ukraine. Um, the spokesman said that more than eighty five, and almost all of the ninety howitzers have been delivered. So you know, hedging his bets there, but I'm guessing eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight, or eighty nine howitzers have been d- delivered, and sixty percent of the hundred ten thousand rounds to go with them have also been been delivered. The spokesman also said that in the last twenty four hours there have been thirteen deliveries of aid from seven nations. So I mean, it, it just r- underlines that this this effort from the West to keep Ukraine supplied and um, as we saw around as we are seeing around Kharkiv maybe start knitting together some tactical counterattack some count, some tactical success into an operational push um, that then that might be contributing to something more broadly there um, they're saying uh, Russia now has 97 battalion tactical groups in Ukraine we think they invaded with around 125 and of course a lot of those are in no nowhere near the shape they were in a few a few weeks ago and uh, there have been anecdotal reports uh, of soldiers and officers refusing to obey orders and the overall assessment from the, the Pentagon was that um, he reiterated that the um, the words used in a, in a previous briefing said that the progress in the Donbass has been this is a quote incremental and anemic which uh, yeah, it's, it sort of sums it up, but it's, it's, not, it's not good for a military force. Thanks, Tom. Um, Gareth, did you have something you wanted to say as well, actually? I, I saw you unmuted just as, just as Dom started speaking. Or, or rushing in to get the uh, <laughs> get the last snippet in. Yes, so uh, I mentioned the Viasat hack earlier. Uh, of course, the, the big news on that today is that um, the UK has formally attributed that to Russia. Now, if you're a cybersecurity geek, you kind of already knew this has already been discussed sort of informally amongst research companies and so on. But today's statement from uh, the Foreign Secretary, actually, Liz Truss, 
She has described this as a clear and shocking evidence of a deliberate and malicious attack by Russia against Ukraine, which has significant consequences on ordinary people and businesses in Ukraine and across Europe. Uh, And she's been followed in that by the the European Union as well, which has also joined in the efforts to attribute the hack uh, to Russia. So what we're seeing there is not just a sort of, okay, we knew this happened, uh, but that's that's more of an international level condemnation, um, which is one of those things that countries do. Uh, in the cyber world when they want to to set an example, when they want to signal to other nations. I mentioned earlier those non-aligned countries who Russia's might be trying to influence now with their troll farms. Uh, that's a signal to those nations which says, hey, look, we're calling out this behaviour. It's completely unacceptable. We hope you agree with us and we hope that you will get on board with our uh, view of what norms should be for state-on-state behaviour in the uh, cyberspace domain. So, uh, yeah, that is, I think, the, the big news of today on Viasat. Thanks, Gareth. So I think we should move to our final thoughts. Um, Dom and Gareth, what should we be looking for in the next few days, in the next week? So news out of the US yesterday, um, um, legislation going through Congress about the Lend-Lease Act, which will make it easier for the US to supply equipment to Ukraine. So that, I think that's just gone through yesterday, or it might be going through today. But uh, expect to hear some announcements in the next, or hopefully today, but, but in the next few days, certainly, about um, what that might mean for um, new natures of equipment and new quantities and the speed of delivery. So yeah, keep your eye on, on the US for that. And Gareth, would you like the, the final words? An honour, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, looking ahead then in the Ukrainian cyber conflict, um, the Ukrainian Special State Information Service, which sort of handles cybersecurity communications, they are usually issuing bulletins once or twice a week about new strains of malware, malicious software, deployed against uh, them by the Russians. So I think we can expect to see more coming from them on that score. Um, also, we'll see, I think, they keep up a steady drumbeat of cybersecurity warnings, which we can all learn from. Stuff I was mentioning earlier, you know, don't click on links from strange people or if friends and colleagues start behaving weirdly, all that kind of thing. I think if we see a change from that routine drumbeat, then we very rapidly know that something's emerging. So, uh, yes, keep an eye on them. They're the SSSCIP, the Ukrainian... I couldn't tell you what it stands for, but uh, uh, it translates into English as the Ukrainian State Special Service of Information. Moldova is a small European country to the west of Ukraine. A former Soviet Republic, it's another nation which, like Ukraine, often finds itself in the mind of Vladimir Putin. At the end of last week, my colleague Sophie Ko spoke to journalist James Kilmer, who's been reporting from Moldova for The Telegraph. So you travelled to the Moldovan enclave of Transnistria. Um, It would be really good to get a sense of the kind of cultural background of this area, at what point did it break away from Moldova, and where is it? Transnistria is a sliver of land, mainly on the eastern side of the Dniestra River in North Moldova, between North Moldova and Ukraine. About 420 miles long, um, there's about 400,000 or so people living there in the capital's Tiraspol. It tried to declare independence from Moldova in 1990, when Gorbachev was allowing some freedoms under his Perestroika um, program. And uh, they held um, a regional vote and decided to get independence from Moldova itself. Moldova itself is Romania. It, it looks towards Romania's agriculture, agricultural. It looks towards Romania for its culture and its language um, and that sort of thing. And, and in, the ni- in the sort of end of the 80s and the 1990s, all these Soviet republics were realizing their nationalist ambition and Moldova was going towards Romania. 
And in Transnistria, you had ethnic Slavs who very much looked towards Moscow, spoke Russian, uh, had Slavic names, all this sort of thing. They didn't want to be part of that. So they voted to succeed. Um, and in 1992, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a brief war and about a thousand people were killed. And after war, Transnistria pretty much was able to protect its border zone and, and, and left Moldova, although it, it was still very much an unrecognized state, even by Moscow. And bearing in mind that it is unrecognized by Moscow, obviously in the last fortnight or three weeks or so, we've seen kind of this dramatic increase in tensions in the area. Why is that and what's happened? It's two things. There's people getting nervous about the war in Ukraine. You know, that area borders Ukraine. Uh, Transnistria borders Ukraine. Moldova borders Ukraine. And like all the former Soviet states, they all have families everywhere. So they're completely impacted by it. The Ukrainian army blew up the bridge which links Ukraine to Transnistria at the beginning of the war because they were worried that Transnistrian forces might cause problems in their rear guard. And in Moldova proper, the blockade of the port of Odessa in Ukraine has caused huge inflation and scarcity of products, etc. Added to that, a Russian general, I think at the end of April, said that one of the reasons the Russian army wanted to capture the entire southern coastline of Ukraine was to form a land bridge to Transnistria, where he said Russian speakers were being repressed. So as soon as he said that, everyone's eyes were straight on Transnistria, so, um, like, what's going on there? Why they're being repressed? Is it true they're being repressed? Is the is, is Moscow looking for an, another excuse to extend its power, etc.? Um, and the fear is that there is a small, I, I think about 1,500 strong, uh, Russian army contingent there. Would they be used to invade Moldova? Would they be used to invade uh, Ukraine? It's, it's, it's a sort of pressure point that the Kremlin can use. Once that Pandora's box was open, everyone was nervous about Transnistria and Moldova. And then since then, there's been a couple of so-called terrorist attacks in Transnistria. About 10 days ago, on a public holiday, so the building was empty, the local security forces building was bombed. No one was injured. And then later that day, um, or the next very early next morning, a couple of transmission masks in another town were also bombed. Um, the Transnistrians have blamed Ukrainian forces. Um, Ukrainian and Moldovan officials have said this is just something called a provocatio, sort of a made-up attack to make a reason to escalate tension. And ov- obviously there's we've got these two monologues happening at the same time from um, both pro-Ukrainian and pro Russian forces. Where does Moldova and separately Transnistria sit diplomatically in this war? Um, have their leaders condemned it? Both have a very difficult line to tread. So the deal with Transnistria is they are entirely reliant on Russia for their economy. They get free gas. Um, I think they get some free pension money from Russia. Um, all their banking systems linked to the Russian system and, and all that sort of thing. So when the economic sanctions started messing around Russia, they were also badly hit. When when I was in Tiraspol, the capital of Transnistria, on last Monday, we went into a bank and they said they weren't able to issue any more debit cards or credit cards 
be Visa or MasterCard because that system's over for Russia. They've been kicked out of that. There's no more SWIFT, etc. I know that petrol prices have gone up like 40%, food prices have gone up 30% as well. So the authorities in Transnistria themselves, they have to be pliant to the Kremlin. But they also, you also get a real sense from them that they actually don't want a war as well. The people don't want a war and their leaders don't want a war. Like there was no preparations for war when I was there. There was no military parading around. I spoke to a, a reservist lieutenant. He hadn't been mobilized. So it feels like on the ground, nothing's much happening, although people are uneasy. And then the, the rhetoric has been slightly more aggressive because it's got to be so the Kremlin's happy. So they've, they've talked about raising the terrorism level and they've talked about being under threat, etc. But uh, what they're saying, the reality does seem very different. As for Moldova, again, they've got to be incredibly careful because it's a small country, two and a half million, I think, or three million people. Uh, one of the poorest in Europe. It is entirely surrounded on one side by Ukraine and Romania on the other. Those are the two borders, that's it. Like I said earlier, they are sort of ethnic and ethnically and linguistically and culturally Romanian looking. And they're officially a neutral country. So they, they haven't said they want to join NATO at all. They have said that they are a neutral country. But the president has come out and criticised the, the Putin's war in um, Ukraine, which I think is very important for her to do for her European ambitions. They want to join the European Union, so that's an important step. Now, amongst the people, again, there's very there's huge division. Like most of the most of the Romanian-speaking people in Moldova, which is the sort of majority, I think, are sort of against the war. Most of them are against the war, but there are Slavic people living there who came there under the Soviet Union, etc., who speak Russian as their first language and who are pro-Kremlin, pro-war. I spoke to one woman uh, in central Chisinau on Sunday, you know, ten ten days ago from now. Sunday afternoon, walking her dog, watching her dog play. She was a Russian, ethnic Russian woman, you know, enjoying her life in um, central Chisinau. But she was like, yeah, the, the war's a good thing. The Ukrainians are fascists. They, they need to be pushed. Goodness. And do you think that that sense is a few in the population? Or do you think that actually there is a sense of kind of militarily Russian forces in the region you mentioned the kind of the 1500 troops that are there do they have as much of an impact as you would imagine the tricky thing with these 1500 troops is what, what people talk about is how effective they can be because the feeling is that these are not sort of they're not crack troops by any means they're not probably not really up to the standard of the average russian troop deployment and, and they haven't performed very well these are, these are sort of remnants of remnants who end up in Transnistria. And when we say Russian, I think most of the 1500 are probably made up of, of local people who have Russian passports, of which most people would in Transnistria. So, yeah, they would take their commands directly from the Kremlin, but they might not be the most effective fighting machine. But Moldova itself, I think, has a very small army, only a few thousand men, and is generally considered fairly underprepared and, and woefully trained and, and armed. So militarily, Moldova definitely do not want to get sucked into something. I think the important thing when we're thinking about Moldova at the moment, two, two other important things. People are very scared. So people are stressed and scared. It's the main topic of conversation everywhere. Everyone's watching the news all the time, blah, blah, blah. 
people have got grab bags packed uh, with documents, pet foods, uh, spare clothes, etc., ready to go. And the trigger for when people are ready to go is if a desa falls. Then they're like, it's a desa is a three-hour drive from um, Kishinev, and they're like, that's it. We're in the car. We're straight out. We're not even going to wait around, to, you know, to find out what happens next. And the second thing is as well as a potential military clash, analysts are saying that something that's perhaps more likely is that the Kremlin or pro-Kremlin groups will whip up anti-Moldova sentiment in Chisinau or in other cities in Moldova properly and will start sort of popular unrest, street unrest. So it's not going to be military or military. It might just be you know, Slavic Russians rising up in, in the street and, and agitating. And as someone that's been on those streets, did you get a sense that there was a kind of tension in the air between groups already, um, or even that some people didn't necessarily want to share their views with you as a, a, a Western journalist? I had to be extremely careful with who I was talking with. That is very difficult to talk to anyone particularly because journalists are actually banned, so there's that. And if, and if and some journalists prior to me had been detained and interrogated and deported. So there, 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 there's that. Uh, you, you know, I, I didn't particularly want to be detained and deported by some uh, pro-Russia unrecognised state militia. And I didn't want the people I was with, so I'd hired a guide. I went in as a tourist, so I had to hire a guide. You have to go with a guide. I didn't want my guide to get in trouble either. So I was just talking to people, changing money. I speak Russian, so I, I was able just to go, you know, I want to change the euros into, as it happens, trans, Transnistrian rubles. Oh, and by the way, how do you feel about what's going on? And then people are fairly open because it's quite relaxed and they're just sort of having a quick conversation, you know, while they're doing their business, etc. But to just go up to someone on the street and say, what, you know, what do you feel about the war in Ukraine? I think you'd get a very negative reaction, but perhaps be detained very quickly. I was certainly told there's cameras everywhere. I don't know if there were. So that, that, there's one thing. And the Moldovans, I feel, were actually fairly open. I mean, I, I, I found them... I didn't think the atmosphere was incredibly... It wasn't incredibly tense. I think people are nervous rather than really tense. I, th- I think people are nervous watching their phones. But like I said, I was able to talk to pretty much anyone I wanted in, in, in the central part of the city. Some people said no, and some people who I was going to talk to about, I, there were some people who'd fled Transnistria, because the border of Transnistria and Moldova is very open. So they coexist now. It's not a hard border like South Ossetia. Uh, in the last 30 years, Transnistria and Moldova have learned to uh, live together, I guess. So people just cross that border every day without any problems. Um, that's why it's so hard to quantify how many people actually live in Trans- Transnistria. Uh, but, but some people say, so I have been lined up with some interviews with some people who had been living in Transnistria, but fled to Chisinau when the tension there had spiked after the, so, you know, provocatia. Uh, and, they, and they actually cancelled all their interviews because they, they are nervous, too nervous. You know, that that was unusual, really. I do think, I mean, we did speak to one street artist who'd been um, putting up street art in favour of Ukraine. And he he had his street art vandalised by pro-Russian agitators and then had been getting death threats since then. Um, and he his opinion was that some of the local police who were sympathetic towards the Russian cause were 
behind some of that. So, yeah, it's it's getting pretty nasty. Is he Moldovan or was he from Transnistria? So No, he's actually Russian, ethnically Russian, and he left Russia some years ago. And he said to me that he left Russia about five, six years ago. He, he, he'd grown to actually hate it. He just couldn't handle the, the poverty and the bullying and the and the strictured ways, you know, the, the pressures that come with living in Russia. So, and he'd adopted Moldova as his home, and he loved it. Uh, built up a good business for him, himself doing street art uh, for corporate corporates who want some art in their buildings or, you know, a residential block or just doing, you know, renegade street stuff. But he said his biggest problem with Moldova, especially under the current circumstances, is that when push came to shove, and if the Russians did invade, there wouldn't be enough people prepared to fight. They'd just sort of let it happen and, and see it out. They wouldn't do what Ukraine did. So he, and so he was one of the people who said to me, if Odessa goes, I'm, I'm on a flight to, or I'm in a car to Berlin. That's it. Do you see the Russians advancing into Moldova, or do you see it, as you said, petering out into street fighting? Well, I think the scenario that the Russians roll in is, I mean, I, I, I think what they, what people in Kishinev are saying about Odessa is really, really critical. And, and Mikolaev as well is obviously holding the, the key to Odessa. So, you know, if, if the Russians do end up controlling the entire southern Ukrainian coastline, I would not be hanging around in Kishinev. Why would the Russians stop there? So, yeah, I mean, I think it definitely could happen, but the Russians have got their work cut out massively. And as we all know, they're not performing particularly well. Um, as for an attack from Transnistria, I personally, I mean, there have been, there have been too many provocatia to discount it, but um, I, it would be incredibly hard for them to pull off successfully, I think. There's just not enough. I mean, what, um, what they do with 1,500 men, you can't really do very much. As, as for the option of, with um, street protests, etc., I don't think that would be difficult to organise. And I think if people didn't have enough on their plate and they wanted something else to do, that would be quite an easy option. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Alice Hearing.